Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everybody and welcome to New Books in Folklore. This is one of the many podcast channels that you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today my guest is Michael Dylan Foster, who is Professor of Japanese and Department Chair of East Asian Languages and Cultures at UC Davis. He's going to be talking about a new volume which he recently co-edited with Jeffrey Tolbert, who is an Assistant Professor of American Studies and Folklore at Penn State. And the book in question is called The Folkloresque, Reframing Folklore in a Popular Culture World. Michael Dylan Foster, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm going to start off in our traditional way by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a folklorist. Okay, yeah. I am a folklorist primarily focusing on the geographical region of Japan. And I've been uh, I've been a folklorist now for I don't know uh, twenty or thirty years I think, um, and my research has uh, focused mostly on uh, Japanese uh, monsters, what we could call folk monsters, uh, something called yokai, um, sort of like the, the fairy lore of, of Japan. I've done a lot of research on that, and I've also done a lot of research on ritual and festival in Japan. Um, so that's sort of that's been my my academic focus, but of course there's been a lot of work uh, affiliated with that that I, I, I've done as well. Um, I became a folklorist um, actually. I was working in Japan. I was uh, teaching English after college in Japan for a few years and learned Japanese uh, to a certain extent, and then I wanted to get a master's degree in Asian studies. Uh, so I started to study at UC Berkeley. And I really didn't know what I was, uh, what I, my my objective was. I, I just sort of wanted to explore more about uh, Japanese culture and uh, perhaps go into political science or something like that at some point. Uh, work for the State Department, so, something like that. But I ended up taking some literature courses, and uh, I was taking a pre-modern Japanese literature course. And I had a book that I picked up in Japan while traveling uh, called "The Legends of Tono" in English, and uh, I sh- showed that to my professor, and I said you know, I'd like to write my final paper on this book. And he said, well, you can't do that because uh, that book is not about pre-modern Japan. It's about modern Japan and it's not literature. It's, it's folklore. But if you're interested in folklore, he said, there is a very famous folklorist teaching at this university, a guy named Alan Dundas. So why don't you take one of his classes? Uh, so I took I took his advice and I, I took Alan Dundas's classes. And Alan Dundas, of course, is, was a, a, a major um, fascinating folklorist. And I took his undergraduate seminar, uh, his undergraduate lecture class first, and then I took his graduate seminars. And I suddenly realized that um, for much of my life, I've been interested in folklore. I just didn't know there was a word associated with it. Um, and that's that's how that's how I got involved. That's quite a common story, isn't it? Once you know that there is a discipline of folklore, it's like, oh, right, there it is. Exactly, exactly. I just want to digress a moment because you said you studied with Alan Dundies, who is this huge figure in folklore. And I'm curious to know what he was like as a teacher. Oh, um, yeah, he was 
curiously fascinating as a teacher, right? And uh, so the first course I took with him was an undergraduate class. I think it was kind of a notoriously famous class uh, in, in um, at UC Berkeley. It was called Anthropology 160. I, it probably had, oh, I don't know, two or 300 students. And there was something, and I can't quite place it. There's something almost mesmerizing about the way he spoke. He wasn't particularly articulate or eloquent. Uh, he didn't have any of the external signs of a great lecturer, but there was something that was just so uh, passionate and enthusiastic and deeply resonant about the way he spoke so that uh, the very, I, I remember this very specifically when I started sitting in on the class, he gave us, and this is again, a, a huge lecture class. He gave us um, a bibliography of important books by folklorists. And for the first several weeks of class, every class he would start with about 10 minutes just going down that list and describing the books. Uh, and maybe it was because I had suddenly discovered folklore as a field and I was obsessed with it. But I think it was even more, there was something just so vibrant in it that I I looked forward to him describing books. It was a really, you know, it's something that that's so rare. But that sort of just listening to his him intellectually uh, explore what these books are about and, and um criticize them sometimes and, and exhort them other times as something we should be reading. It was just really fascinating. So that there was this weird attractiveness to him that a kind of in place of, you know, a difficult to describe charisma. Um, and the same in his graduate seminars as well. Um, and, and the seminars were, were in some ways quite rigorous, but it was almost a privilege to, to listen to him talk about things, even when we didn't always agree with him. He was very open to uh, discussion and even conflict, uh, and, and he liked to be challenged. I think so. He was really a, a kind of a curious, dynamic, charismatic, brilliant individual. Speaking of describing books, that's sort of what you're going to do now. <laughs> so, what was the impetus behind this book? So, the folkloresque is a uh, a new word or a newish word that that um, uh, my co-author and I wanted to sort of. Uh, put out there as a kind of heuristic um, device to sort of unpack a lot of what's going on uh, has always been going on, but I think is more evident now perhaps because of new media and, and the internet and, and globalization as well. Uh, unpack what's going on with the relationship of, between what we call folklore and what we also call what we call popular culture. Um, and and I, I want to say right from, from the battle uh, right off from the start that um, we call it popular culture, but but you could substitute the word popular culture here for literature or film or all sorts of other uh, forms of, of cultural expression. Um, the way that the book came about was, for me, uh, what happened was, and I, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, I was invited to give a talk about a Japanese anime, an animated film by a very, very famous one by Miyazaki Hayao, an, an animation called uh, Spirited Away. Uh, and I think this was back in 2007, I was invited to a university to talk about the folklore in that particular film, um, the Japanese folklore. And when I started watching the film carefully, looking for folklore, um, I, I, there was something in there that, that resonated with my understanding of Japanese tradition, uh, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was a very vague uh, sense of connection. And more importantly, what I saw the director doing was creating 
new conglomerations of what may, sort of folkloric motifs using words from traditional Japanese uh, folk tales and, and, and even uh, literature on folklore, but putting them in different contexts and sort of creating something new with pieces that were cobbled together, little bits and pieces from a real tradition, a, a, a real tradition meaning from traditional narratives, from traditional belief systems that have been documented. I saw that going on and I didn't know how to describe that. So I, um, you know, I thought about a lot of the older words that have been used for this kind of thing, folklorism or folklorismus. Um, uh, also the word fake lore, a very sort of pejorative word, but, but a word that's uh, had some value at a time. And um, the word that really uh, came to me to describe it most adequ- adequately was uh, the word folkloresque. And I can talk more about what that, what that ended up meaning in, in, a, in a little while, but this was something, uh, so this was, I think, 2007, and it was sort of in the back of my head, and I thought at some point when I have uh, more time to focus on this, I'd really like to sort of dig up, um, really get into the whole history of the field of folklore studies and think about how people have dealt with this conundrum, the, the relationship of, of folklore and tradition with something that's popularly produced for uh, remuneration, right, to, to sell as, as a profit profitable enterprise. Um, and I thought about this, uh, it was sort of in the back of my head and I mentioned it at one point, I was teaching at Indiana university at this point, And I, it was probably the year 2010, 2011, 2012. I'm not sure when I was teaching a, uh, a graduate seminar, uh, on historical literary, uh, methods to, to folkloristics. And one of my students, Jeff Tolbert, uh, so in, in class, I very briefly mentioned this notion of the folkloresque. I sort of explained what I just explained here. And he got very excited about this when, when Jeff heard this and came up to me after class. He said, you know, I've been thinking about something similar to this, a little bit different, but some, you know, some similar elements. Um, and he said, he said to me, and he was just a fairly new a PhD student at the time. He said, you should write something about this. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to write something about it, but, but not right now. I'm working on some other projects. Anyway, I, I got to know Jeff uh, over the years i you know was on his dissertation committee we took a, uh, he took a lot of classes with me and we became friends and he would always exhort me to to write something about this and one day i just said well listen why why don't we write something together and um and then we started bouncing the idea off of uh, other people we knew who uh, might be interested in it and we came up with the idea of, of doing an edited volume like this and so that the genesis was really it was it was exciting because it's it's so r- rare, I think, at least in my experience, to really have uh, the genesis of a, of a book project and hopefully a useful idea for a lot of people to come out of an intellectual exchange in an academic seminar. I really, uh, it's kind of the, thing, the kind of thing you read about uh, in legend, as it were. Um, so it was really nice that it actually happened and it actually uh, came into fruition and as an object that we can now hold in our hands, hands and share with other people. That's a very inspiring story. So tell us more about what the folkloresque actually is and how it manifests. Okay, yeah. So what the folkloresque is, and I guess this this also, of course, gets into the notion of what folklore is, which, as as you know, and all the listeners, I assume, to this podcast will know, is is a huge can of worms to open up the definition of of what folklore is. And so I, I won't really do this because part part of what the book is about is is sort of playing with that idea. Um, but there's, there's, I think maybe there's two elements we can think of. One is that when we think of folklore, we often think of 
uh, expressive culture of some sort that is, and there are certain, I, I always like to uh, uh, allude to uh, Elliot Oring's uh, uh, old article where he, he doesn't want to define folklore, but he talks about various orientations. Uh, I, in, when I teach it, I like to call them the Oring's orientations um, that he, he, uh, you, he points out that folklorists in practice tend to do research on expressive culture that fits into these categories, not all of them, but, but they, these orientations, these tendencies. And some of those include things like the marginality of the, the item under discussion, um, power structure, structures and um, ideologies involved. But he also talks about uh, the notion of, you know, face-to-face communication, which of course is, is now uh, very mediated in a lot of ways, but the informality of the transmission of, of an item of folklore and, uh, the other thing that I think about in terms of that is the fact that folklore in practice uh, often is not for uh, financial profit, <laughs> for example. And that that aspect of the commercialization, uh, the commercial aspect is something that is stands in opposition to popular culture and a popular culture, whether a product, whether it's a comic book, whether it's a film, whether it's an animation, whether it's music, whatever it is, is often um, and I don't want to say 100%, but it's often done to make money and it's done commercially. Uh, and you can see that play out in a number of ways. Um, folklore, I think, like to think of as a kind of an open source, right? You can, anybody can retell a folktale or a legend or, or a joke, um, but you can't do that with Mickey Mouse. You can't draw a picture of Mickey Mouse and sell it uh, without violating copyright laws. So uh, th- that's one sort of fundamental way in which the law actually makes it dis- distinguishes between these these two fields of, of uh, expression. So that's one dynamic that's going on. Uh, one way I like to think of folklore as being different from uh, popular culture in that sense. The other is um, what we're talking about in the, with the folkloresque is really popular culture and literary objects that draw on folklore in a particular way, given that sort of distinction that I just tried to set up. And they draw on uh, popular culture, but the idea of the folkloresque is to allow us to think about what it is that consumers of popular culture think of when they think of folklore. So it's kind of a popular culture, uh, popular culture's emic or the consumers of popular culture their emic understanding of what folklore is, if that makes any sense. Right, which is often at odds with what trained folklorists in the academic realm think of as folklore. Exactly, exactly. And that's really that was really one of the impetuses uh, for the for the book is that, you know, as trained folklorists, we can't ignore what people call folklore, right? That the whole, uh, you know, the uh, folklorists have traditionally paid attention to vernacular understandings. So one of the vernacular understandings we should think about is the vernacular understanding of what folklore is. And that's often expressed uh, within popular cultural um, products, whatever those are. One of the things you say in in the introduction is that you're not using folkloresque as any kind of pejorative term, unlike fake law, for example, which did have that connotation. It's more this is opening up a new field of study or naming a field of study. 
Yeah, and and we I, I want to recognize that, and, and we do recognize this in the book that everything we're saying here um, is, in many ways, it's not new. We're we're sort of synthesizing a lot of ideas, but 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 as you say, we're naming a, a field of study, naming an idea, and trying to pull it away from a pejorative um, sort of uh, boundary making um, uh, associations that used to be attached to, to the study of popular culture as opposed to folklore. We're really not, uh, the distinction, as one of the contributors to the book said, um, ideally the distinction between, uh, the, the word folkloresque will have a shelf life, that at some point we'll realize that the intertwining of popular culture and folklore, the folkloresque and, and the folkloric, whatever we want to call it, is really, um, the boundaries are so blurred that they're no longer important. But at the moment, I think those boundaries aren't that blurred. And it is important to use this as a device to, to look at the way in which uh, folklore is consumed and, uh, and, and produced and sold by entities who may not actually belong to the particular tradition out of which that, that folklore is emerging, for example. So we wanted to, as, as you mentioned, make it a non-pejorative expression, a very uh, open ended, um, uh, open-ended, uh, uh, label to do, to, to do what a lot of people have already been doing, looking at literary representations of folklore, looking at, uh, there's a whole field of, uh, fairy tale film studies. And all of that I think does fit within the notion of the folkloresque. And this is in part, as, as you mentioned, the, the word fake lore, which, um, as, many of the listeners will know is was created by Richard Dorson in 1950 as an explicit critique of uh, what he saw as people profiting from reprinting and, and selling uh, folk, folk tales and, and other things from, from uh, specific traditions. Uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to be too critical of Dorson because I think what Dorson was trying to do at that point was was set aside some boundaries for what it is that academic folklorists should be doing. He wasn't um, he wasn't critical of that material itself, but he was trying to sort of uh, really enhance the field of of folklore studies as a specialist field. So that was a very sort of disciplinarily important move at the time. But by labeling something folklore, uh, it also makes the folklorist the you know the the judge of what's real and what's fake, what's authentic and what's not authentic. Um, and what we're trying to do with the folkloresque is, is get rid of that. <laughs> what's the authenticity lies with the consumer of the product. Uh, and that's what we're, we're really trying to get at. And I would, I, I would also add, I think if Richard Dorson were alive today, he would be very much into this project. I, I think he would very much agree with what we're trying to do here. That's just my, my sense of uh, having read his materials that he would be open-minded to this. I think so, too. I mean, he was a man of his time. Exactly. You say in the introduction that the folklorists and folklore are still a binary, but at least they provide a new mechanism for exploring the structure, unpacking the dynamics of the folklorists, both with regard to its production and its perception, reveals the quality that makes something seem folkloric. So it's a way of working out what it is that's kind of folkish, <laughs> exactly and and um 
to get back to what what I actually I wrote a chapter about in this book and and what sort of the initial impetus to this was that that movie Spirited Away and I don't I don't know if you've seen that but it's uh, it's a wonderful movie it really is a, and what's fascinating about that movie to me was that I I watched it um and I saw all these and all I can, and, and this is all I could think of. They're almost fragments, or, or and and really, what they are. There's identifiable motifs in there. And uh, Michael Coven, um, uh, folklore says that used he's created a word, uh, motif spotting, as a kind of um, thing that that you can do with popular culture. And his point, and and we totally agree with that, is that's just that's just the beginning, right? You, that's that's where you start, and then you go from there and try to figure out what's happening with those motifs. And so I started to look at Spirited Away and, and found all these, uh, what I saw as, as motifs, some of them directly referencing Japanese um, uh, cultural traditions, but more importantly, others that were much vaguer in their references. You know, th- uh, the fact that a lot of the important action in the movie takes place on a bridge, for example, uh, and there's tunnels and, and twilight is a very important uh, time in the film. So you know, these liminal spaces and times are really critical. Now, that's not a particular, uh, I mean, that does exist in Japanese folklore and it exists in many different folklore um, traditions. And of course, that that itself is a motif, right? So uh, what the author, uh, what the director was doing was was you drawing uh, from existing identifiable things that we, we feel we may have seen before or felt before or read about before in, in a folktale or legend or whatever, and putting them together in, in unique ways uh, to create a product that is not part of a folklore tradition, but feels like it emerged from it. You say that there's um, three ways in which the folkloresque kind of appears, or at least there may be more than that, but that's what you're concentrating on in the book. And the book is divided up into sections according to these three ways. So can you just give us a brief outline of the three ways and then we'll move on to the different sections? Sure. And, and that's, that was really important. You know, as you can tell, even from my conversation about this, it's, it's, it's a very large kind of complex set of threads that are intertwined. And we wanted to have a starting point to help try to uh, put, put some order on these things. And uh, what we came up with is our three uh, modes of discourse within the folkloresque. And as you said, there, there could be many more. These were just the three that sort of emerged from discussions between Jeff and myself and with, with a lot of our contributors. And when we started talking to them about what they wanted to contribute, it seemed that we could break it up into three general categories. The first one um, is this one that I was sort of describing just now with Spirited Away, uh, which uh, we called integration. Uh, the idea being that it integrates into a new product all sorts of um, motifs and references. Uh, in in my own research, I, in my own uh, article, I call it uh, fuzzy illusions, um, illusions to things that are existing in other traditions and brings them together in a way in which we can't necessarily identify where it comes from, but we, we have a sense, a fuzzy sense that it does belong to a tradition or several different traditions. So that's, that's what we call uh, integration. Uh, the next category is portrayal. And portrayal is... Uh, a little bit of a, sort of a, a meta folkloric idea of how folklore as a field, as a discipline, either named or into, you know, sort of uh, suggested within a, uh, a popular cultural product or a literary text or film, how that is portrayed. Uh, and sometimes that gets to how folklorists themselves as, as individuals are portrayed. 
And, and that has some very interesting, you know, when you start thinking about it, you see that also very clearly reflects the vernacular uh, idea in a given culture of what a folklorist is and what, a, what folklore as a field is. Uh, so that's um, the second form. And the third form is a really quite complicated, I think, but actually really uh, fascinating. And, and we called that, for lack of a better word, we called it parody. And uh, in that case, uh, we could have also called it uh, as well something like meta folklore or meta commentary or something. And that's when you get a cultural product that um, is uh, giving homage to an existing uh, some some folk uh, something within folklore, giving homage to it at the same time, playing with that idea, and and the consumer, the viewer of the film or the reader of the text, is very much aware that that's going on. The paradic uh, aspect of it is uh, catalyzed by the fact that the consumer is 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 cognizant of the critique that's that's occurring. And one very to me a, a wonderful example of that is. Um, a lot of the, actually even some recent Disney films, but films like Enchanted, uh, which are playing not only with the viewer's understanding of sort of traditional uh, European folk tales, but also playing with the viewer's understanding of the way those folk tales have been Disneyfied or used in popular culture. So there's a multi-leveled critique and sort of meta commentary going on. So that's actually that's a very complicated way in which the folkloresque is used, but but that one um, we also thought was was quite valid and, and interesting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right, well, let's move on to the first section. And your essay is the first one in that section, which is the section on integration. And you've talked a little bit about it already, but tell us more about it. It's called The Folkloresque Circle, Toward a Theory of Fuzzy Illusion. Yeah, so so as I was saying, I was trying to figure out with Spirited Away how illusion was working in that case. And and my conclusion was that in most cases, the illusions themselves were fuzzy. Uh, you would see a bridge and it wasn't and you you there'd be a folklore connection to that bridge, but it wasn't connection to a specific uh, identifiable folktale in Japanese uh, tradition, for example. Uh, and I Play, in in this article, I in this chapter, I set that in opposition to another film, actually by the, a different director, but the same studio, a film called Pompoko, which very few people have watched. But um, in, in the U.S., very few people have watched it. But that film uh, has as characters a little uh, uh, something called a raccoon dog or a tanuki, which is a folkloric character in Japan that's very very well known for its shape shifting and its antics and it's a mischievous. Uh, a supernatural creature, a real animal, but it also has supernatural characteristics. And in the film, Pompoko, those characteristics are very, very clearly demonstrated. And there are what I call precise illusions, precise illusions pointing directly to existing known uh, folktales, for example, one one in particular about uh, called the, the, um, the lucky teapot. 
Uh, there's all kinds of comic allusions to that. So if you're watching this with no background knowledge of specifically Japanese folklore, you wouldn't understand it. Uh, it would just be a weird movie. Yes, I think one of the characteristics of this creature is its gargantuan testicles that perform many of the transformations. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and this is so. This is something, and and I, I this is on my mind now because I just actually finished teaching a course here at UC Davis in which um, I, uh, as an experiment, it's the first time I've done this, but I showed them Spirited Away, and then I also showed them this movie Pompoko, and we discussed the folkloresque, and we tried to. To look at this, and and a lot of them, um, and these are students who are really into Japanese culture, which is why they took the course. But very few of them had ever seen Pompoko. And as you point out, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Tanuki is its gigantic testicles and the fact that it can uh, it can expand its scrotum to be several square meters uh, in size and do all kinds of magical stuff with that that magical apparatus, as it were. And, uh, of course, this looks crazy if you don't know it. Uh, and, but And my students, um, I, I, I prepared them for that. And afterwards, they some of them made comments that, yeah, had I not known that's what was going on, that would have been utterly strange and, and somewhat, well, it is disgusting anyway, the way it's portrayed, but uh, utterly strange uh, film that I wouldn't have understood. Uh, and that... Um, so that's one aspect, and but what that's what I would call a precise illusion. So the Japanese viewer would have a some kind of background knowledge of that uh, to to generalize and um, and other things even more specific. There's actually specific references to um, paintings and imagery that if you grew up in Japan, you would probably be exposed to. Whereas the average viewer from outside that culture wouldn't have that uh, sense of connection. Spirited Away, on the other hand, one reason it was actually internationally popular, one, I think it won the uh, the Academy Award for Best Animated uh, Film or Best Foreign Animated Film. I'm not sure what the category was, but uh, was one of the reasons it was critically successful and popularly successful around the world. And, and my students all have seen it was because it didn't make those precise illusions. You don't have to have that specific learned acquaintanceship with the culture in question to understand it. Whereas with Pompoko, you do. And Pompoko, uh, I, I looked up um, a bunch of reviews of it. Uh, it, it first of all, it, it didn't play very well in the U.S. And then when it was reviewed in the U.S., even in the in the New Yorker, I think, which is usually a fairly sophisticated venue, their comment was, "This is." Uh, some, it's a, uh, something about how even for Japan, this is a completely bizarre movie. <laughs> and uh, so so the cross-cultural aspect doesn't work unless you're familiar with the illusions. And again, that, this is where there's a distinction between uh, the, the fuzzy illusion, a vague illusion to folkloric things, whatever those are, and precise illusion to actual identifiable uh, references. Uh, so that was that was the sort of opposition that I tried to discuss in the article. In the end, though, and this is uh, the reason it's called uh, the folkloresque circle is, um, as we were saying, you know, these are these are two different things: the folklore and the, the folklore and the folkloresque. But if we really start tracing them historically, we can see. I like to think of it as a kind of Mobius strip that they seem like they're two sides of something, but they really are 
deeply connected. It's really a circle. So even, for example, the, and I'm just sort of speculating, but the film Spirited Away has become such a sort of mainstay of Japanese uh, culture for kids that I suspect many children who watch that think that some of the gods and, and demon figures in that film are real gods and demon figures from uh, Japanese folklore and folk belief. Uh, so, and, and in 40 years, they may have entered tradition in a more sort of folkloric way. So there is this kind of interplay between these things that that's unquestionable. Uh, so I like to think of it more as not that they're separate, but they're, they're really, uh, you know, Mobius strip. Like if you really trace one side, you find yourself on the other side. One feeds into the other and back again. Exactly, exactly. There are three other essays in this section on integration. Are you able to give us a brief idea of what's in those? Yeah, just very briefly. Um, the second one is is the work is by Timothy Evans, uh, a, a wonderful folklorist um, in Kentucky. And uh, his research is on the text of Neil Gaiman. Uh, who probably many of your listeners are aware of, kind of the, the fantasy um, writer and very dynamic, uh, also a graphic novelist. But uh, and actually, I'm trying to remember which book he's actually focusing on here. But what uh, what Tim does in this this essay is he looks at the way in which Neil Gaiman very consciously incorporates folkloric elements uh, into his work. He integrates them in ways that give a sense of of authority to what's going on. Uh, and then he takes it from there. And I'm, I'm not doing it justice because I haven't read the article recently. Uh, but that's what, what he's doing in there. He's working with Neil Gaiman. Um, uh, Paul Manning has written an article, a chapter called Pixie's Progress, How the Pixie Became Part of the 19th Century Fairy Mythology, uh, which, as the title looks at, uh, he, he dis- and Paul Manning is a, a linguistic anthropologist um, up in, in Canada. And he... Uh, studies how the pixie as a as a fairy like creature was very uh, i don't want to say consciously but in some ways deliberately introduced into a broader fairy mythology in 19th century britain through the works of one particular author who at the same time was creating a nostalgic sense of the countryside where, where she was living so we look at the way in which um again, integrate folkloric elements from existing traditions were integrated into her uh, her notion of the pixie. And then those were reintroduced, as it were, into people's ideas of, of um, fairy lore in that, in that area. Yes, I was actually very surprised to learn that pixies were located in Dartmoor. I didn't realize they had a locality in the same way that leprechauns are associated with Ireland. I thought the pixies were you know, everywhere. That's how I was raised thinking of pixies. Well, and I think that that's really uh, sort of the point. That's how it works with this, uh, the way it becomes, it, uh, the folkloresque, the whatever we want to call it, the literary, the popular cultural version of folklore actually becomes the folklore of the next generation, as it were. So so you, you grew up with this generalized idea that was probably in part created by the works that, that Paul Manning is discussing here. Right. And then there's one more, Comics as Folklore by Daniel Peretti. Yeah, so that also uh, looks at a very similar idea that he discusses um, uh, particularly uh, comics, uh, Superman comics, 
And he looks at actually both directions. So he looks at the way in which the Superman comic, as it was constructed, did this integration that we're talking about, sort of drawing from existing traditions and creating uh, Superman out of that. But then how Superman as a character has also entered into a more vernacular discourse now where there's uh, Superman festivals and people will make their own costumes. And Superman, in that sense, has sort of been created through bits and pieces of, of folklore tradition into a commercial product, which then has entered back into a, a, a vernacular circul- circulation. So that's the section on integration. Then we come to portrayal. Tell us a little bit more about what's in this section. Right. Portrayal, again, was the notion of the way in which folklore itself as a discipline, uh, those items considered folklore, fairy tales, whatever whatever people call folklore, and folklorists are portrayed within uh, popular cultural um, products. So the, the uh, good example of that is uh, the first one that by uh, my co-author, uh, Jeff Tolbert, in which he looks at the video game, uh, Fatal Frame, and the way in which uh, folklorists in that particular game are uh, sort of the repositories of arcane and occult knowledge, and they're asked to, they're drawn upon, they're asked to help out with certain situations um, because of that special knowledge that they have. So, so it's a very particular uh, vernacular understanding of what a folklore is. That, a folklorist is, and, and I do wish we had special knowledge. But <laughs> uh, the next one is, uh, um, and you can see these different. We're we're really all over the place in terms of genre, and that's part of the point of this. And the ne- the next one is to look at Eamon Kelly, who was a 20th century Irish uh, storyteller, and in this Chad Buderbaugh um, does a great uh, sort of explanation of the way in which uh, Eamon Kelly created himself as a traditional storyteller he 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 was uh he was irish but he was also very intentional in his uh in his the aesthetics that he developed uh for his presentation so he was performing the idea of a traditional storyteller uh within ireland and and became a folk hero in a sense in that context um then the, uh, the final chapter in there is uh, New Minted from the Brothers Grimm, Folklore's Purpose and the Folkloresque in the Tales of Beetle the Bard. This is by Jeff Tolbert and also by Carly Holt Jensen. Uh, they wrote this together. And that one looks at uh, how folktales are actually treated within – folktales as a genre, and so not necessarily real folktales or real from tradition, but folktales as a genre are created and treated um, within the Harry Potter series. So again, the portrayal of what a folk tale is, or I think in this case, they're actually fairy tales. Um, so that's the, that's the second section. One of the things that's mentioned is that since this is the vernacular view of what folklore is and what folklorists do, sometimes these folkloresque portrayals bring people to the discipline. Yes, yes. And, and that's, I mean, that's a very important aspect of why we really think it's important not to be pejorative towards these folklorist portrayals, uh, because it's so many of us, and I know this from uh, teaching at Indiana University for, for uh, several, for eight years, um, a lot of the students, even entering the graduate program, would enter with an idea of what folklore is that was not our idea as scholars of folklore, but, but it was that thing that attracted them to the discipline uh, and they entered. And then when we started explaining how the discipline had developed, 
and what its particular um, focus focus is in the plural had been uh, over the last you know 100 150 years those those students were sometimes disillusioned frankly but often they also started to see what they were doing in a different light as well but certainly yeah it's these um, these popular culture versions of folklore that really attract people to think about it more deeply and so what we're trying to do with the folkloresque is say why don't we look at those popular culture versions as well as folklorists, but as also people who want to understand, um, you know, what, what's happening within culture. Uh, so, so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I, and, and that's one hope with this book too, is that, uh, people who are studying popular culture will, um, will read it and see connections that they didn't realize might exist. The last section is on parody, which you described as the most complex version of the folkloresque. Right. Yeah. And this is uh, when we think of parody, we often think of humor or, or satire or something funny. And uh, and in this case, some of these are that way. But but again, parody, not only um, uh, we're tr- I, I think maybe actually a better t- uh, word for it might have been meta meta commentary. But in this case, parody is using the format, using the uh aesthetics of a particular genre to critique at the same time pay homage to that particular genre. One of the essays by Trevor Blank focuses on jokes that were told uh, at the uh, Penn State uh, in response to the Penn State sexual abuse scandal, which was uh, a terrible scandal in which, um, uh, and and I'm not an expert on this at all, but uh, football players at Penn State University in, in Pennsylvania were abused by one of the coaches for many, many years. And he was finally um, caught and arrested and, and is in prison now. Uh, and this all came out, I believe, uh, probably around 20, the dates are in here, but uh, 2012, 2013 or something. And uh, what Trevor Blank did was he collected jokes uh, that were being told on campus. He was on campus at the time concerning that event. What he's really focusing on here, though, is the way in which um, jokes are taken for this very specific event, but they're often repurposed from other events. So, And people would hear the joke and know that it was also referring to a previous joke. So it's a kind of complicated parody of a joke within the joke. At the same time, it's also commenting on a very specific and, and really horrific situation that people were experiencing. Uh, the next um, chapter, uh, The Jokes on Us, an analysis of meta humor uh, by, uh, is by Greg Kelly, who's also an, uh, a joke, a jokester, but also a, a joke expert. And this is uh, one of the things that he's doing here is, is talking about how jokes, um, what he calls meta jokes, jokes that reference other jokes for their humor. And actually, I just opened to a page and, and uh, there's a great short Example of this, he says, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister walk into a bar. The bartender looks up and says, hey, what is this, some kind of joke? <laughs> so, so, of course, the humor is based on the fact that we know that so many jokes start with the, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister walking into a bar. Actually, there's quite a lot of funny jokes in that chapter. Yeah, this, this one in particular is a good, um, it's a good laugh, as it were. Uh, and, and and we can see, but we can see what's going on there. With this is a parody of jokes in that itself. So it's it's commenting on that form of folklore, um, and in so doing, is actually uh, 
paying homage to it and also critiquing it. So that that's what he's doing there. And, and I, I do recommend that for, um, for some brilliant analysis, but also for some good jokes. Uh, the uh, penultimate chapter is by is the fairy telling craft of Princess Tutu, meta commentary and the folkloresque by uh, Bill Ellis. And this is also rather uh, complicated when he's talking about a um, a uh, an anime uh, called Princess Tutu, a Japanese anime. But in the anime. Uh, it's uh, it's a little too complicated to, to briefly summarize, but what uh, is happening is that the characters of a particular sort of uh, fairy tale tradition are taking over their own narrative. And so it's a commentary at the same time on the fairy tale, but also uh, deeply embedded into a commentary on the fairy tale, um, uh, you know, tale type, as it were, various tale types and, and motifs, but at the same time, deeply embedded with a, a critique of storytelling itself and an homage to the, the whole process. And so he, he very, I think, creatively calls it fairy telling. So not fairy tale, but fairy telling because it's a craft that's being practiced by the actual characters of, of the tale itself. As you can tell, the parody section is a little, uh, is, is very complex. Uh, so I, I really, I encourage readers to, to look at that carefully. Briefly, can you just tell us about the final chapter? The final chapter is by uh, Greg Schremp, and it's called Science and the Monsterological Imagination, Folkloristic Musings on David Toomey's Weird Life, the, the title of a book, Weird Life. And what he's doing here, and again, it's rather complex, but it's kind of a brilliant analysis of the way in which um, scientists who uh, traditionally have rejected uh, traditional uh, folkloric uh, pantheons of monsters and demons and, and this sort of monsterological um, uh, uh, taxonomy. Uh, the same scientists who are rejecting that in creating scientific books, and, and this, I think David Toomey's book is about, um, it's a analysis of, of strange life formations, you know, but it's a very scientific analysis. But in, even as they're rejecting these, older, quote, folkloristic conceptions of the universe, they're replicating them in what they're doing. Their own pantheon as they, pantheon of, of weird life, as it were, as that they're creating to refute the older ideas is actually very much in the same, has the same shape and, 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 and reflects those very things that they're critiquing. What's interesting in particular about this, I think, is that the parody that's occurring here is not necessarily understood by the authors themselves. That a sophisticated reader, like Greg Schremp, who's an expert in these fields, a sophisticated reader can do that analysis, uh, analysis and see that the, uh, the, the book itself is, without the author's knowledge necessarily, the book itself is parodying uh, those very forms that it's uh, it's replicating and, and critiquing. Well, at the that same was time. a very quick rattle through the whole book. Is there <laughs> anything that you want to say about it that I haven't given you the opportunity to? Simply that that I didn't do any of those uh, chapter descriptions justice, and and I probably got some things wrong. I haven't read it since uh, for several years since it's been it came out in 2016. But uh, but I would ask readers to to look at those and and think about them. And and I think the really the important part of this book is our hope 
the, the book is not at all conclusive. The book is not the be all and end all of this idea. It's really what we're trying to do is just sort of set up this notion of the folkloresque and, and hand it over to other people to sort of play with and, and take it to in new directions, um, critique what we've written or add to what we've said or do something with it. And the whole objective really is to make popular culture part of the study of what folklorists have traditionally studied. And also, ideally, and I don't know how successful we've been at this, but ideally have students of popular culture and media studies recognize the role that folklore plays in the the text that they're studying as well. I want well. to mention to listeners as well that if they go to the publisher webpage for this book, they can download the first chapter, which is your introduction. Oh, great. I didn't know that. So, Michael, <laughs> what are you working on now? Uh, so now I'm actually working on something completely different. Uh, I'm working on a project that's been ongoing for me actually for 20 years now. I've been um, doing research on uh, a particular ritual in Japan that takes place over New Year's Eve in which uh, demon figures go from, in one small community, demon figures go from house to house uh, scaring children. And it's it's a, uh, something I've been really uh, interested in for many years and I've, I've uh, attended the ritual uh, numerous times and I'm now finally trying to set it all down into okay. a monograph. I think I've read an article of yours on that, something about it being nominated to UNESCO. Yeah, yeah. So just to make life even more common, there are actually two rituals that I've been working with. And one, uh, and now, now they're both actually part of uh, UNESCO, uh, the Intangible Cultural Heritage, uh, the, list of, the representative list of the Intangible Cultural Heritage of Humanity. Uh, they're both actually on that list now, just by chance, which while I've been doing this has given me um, an opportunity to learn a lot about UNESCO. So I have written some articles on that. That was not the intention when I started, but it became an inevitable uh, side effect of having studied this for so long. Now, Michael Dylan Foster, I should let you go now so that you can go and work on that instead of talking to me. <laughs> but I want to thank you very much for taking part in this new Books in Folklore podcast and talking about the folkloresque reframing folklore in a popular culture world which you edited with Jeffrey Tolbert and I also want to remind listeners that New Books in Folklore podcast is one of many on the New Books network so Michael have a lovely rest of day and thank you thank you very much Rachel it's been a pleasure <laughs>